Hey folks, it's Jed Wolpaw here with just a quick message. We have switched over to a new platform, and you may start hearing some ads along with the episodes. This is really a way that we can continue to pay the growing cost of the services we need to keep the podcast coming to you without having to charge listeners. So we really want to keep the content free, and so we're going to start introducing some ads, and so if you hear them, you'll know what's going on. All right, thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we are back with Dr. Jillian Isaac and another keyword episode for the ABA keywords. And today we are going to cover a big one, uh, renal and urinary systems, which really, is, as Dr. Isaac will explain, is going to consist of covering some urologic surgery stuff and then the um, renal and urinary systems. And uh, we'll just do it all as one uh, big session but cover some important stuff that is high yield for the boards. Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome. And I just want to say that it's a snow day here in Maryland, and I got two kids doing virtual school and two dogs. So if you hear background noise, I apologize in advance. But yes, it is a bigger topic. So this comes out of the advanced um, outline on the ABA website for the content for the exam. Uh, The first one is urological surgery. Um, and that includes lithotripsy, which is ESWL. So I call it SWL. It stands for extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, which honestly, I've actually never provided anesthesia for, but they do still ask questions about. And then TERP, which is transurethral resection of the prostate, and then perioperative electrolyte abnormality. So that's what the ABA wants you to know about urological surgery. Then when it comes down to renal disease, The list is a lot longer, but what they're testing is a lot different than what's on that list. And I think a lot of these keywords are probably more oral board game than they are written board game, but this is what the board specifies them wanting you to know. So pathophysiology of renal disease, risk factors for acute renal failure, anesthetic choice in reduced renal function, anesthetic management in renal failure and AV shunts, anesthetic management in renal transplantation, perioperative oliguria and anuria, dialysis and hemofiltration, and perioperative electrolyte abnormalities. And I know that list seems really, really long and really big, but again, there's a big difference between what they want you to know and what they're actually testing. So we can pare that down for a purpose of this keyword episode into like what I actually think you'll see on the test. So again, if you want to look back in the last 10 years and what has been tested in these two topics, um, the biggest one hands down for urological surgery is TERP. 
Terp syndrome, Terp uh, solutions. Uh, so this is very heavily tested. So again, Terp solutions and neurocomplications was tested in 2014. Terp syndrome treatment was tested in 2010 and 2012. CNS complications in 2017. Irrigating fluid complications 2013, 2016. Benefit of spinal versus GA 2014 and 2018. So that's almost a guaranteed test question about Terp. And I don't know if you remember. I remember having a couple on my written boards. You probably did too, Jed. Definitely. Definitely. And then ESWL. So I'm just going to say SWL from now on. Again, it stands for extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy or lithotripsy, but I'm just going to say SWL for purposes of this podcast. Really what they're testing is contraindications. I did find some other questions, but that's what you would expect to see on the test that was tested last year or two years back in 2019. Now, in terms of the renal uh, topic, the renal disease, Really what they're testing is renal failure, electrolytes, and um, bleeding and platelet function in renal failure. And that was tested back in 2009. And aesthetic management in renal failure, that's really a lot to do with drugs. Like what drugs should you use? Should you not use? Should you dose lower? Should you dose higher? That was tested in 08, 09, and 14. Um, prevention of acute tubular necrosis was tested in 2015. Uh, hemodialysis. And lab, like the lab that you see with hemodialysis, 08, 2011, 2014. And then oliguria is probably the biggest topic in the whole renal systems for the advanced. And that's diagnosis, post-op oliguria causes, and pre-renal oliguria. And that was tested in 08, 09, 11, and 2015. So that's what you should expect to see on the test. So again, there's a lot of keywords here, but you can really pare it down to several that is most likely to be tested on the written boards. All right. Great. Um, so regarding TERP, there are some key points here that I want to go through, and then we'll go through the questions. So key point one is that the transurethral resection of the prostate TERP, it typically utilizes large volumes of irrigation fluids for distension and irrigation during the procedure. And historically, they were usually hypoosmolar solutions like glycine, sorbitol, or glucose. Um, there is a lot of exposure of the venous sinuses and damage to the prostatic capsule during the procedure. So you can get huge systemic absorption of large volumes of irrigation fluid. Uh, that can result in pulmonary edema, CHF, hyponatremia, and that can manifest in neurologic sequelae such as seizures and coma. Specific additives can also have adverse effects. So glycine can have cardiac and renal toxicities. Glucose can obviously cause hyperglycemia. And then absorbed glycine can be metabolized in the liver to ammonia and you can get visual impairment. Um, you can see high ammonia levels, and that can cause neurologic disturbance. And then other complications that can result from the absorption of large fluids, just hypothermia, coagulopathy, just kind of being fluid up. Um, and then the last key point here is that the increased use of bipolar um, scopes has enabled the use of electrolyte-containing crystalloid solutions. But use of these solutions, even though they've reduced the incidence of TERP syndrome, you can still see hyponatremia, hypervolemia, pulmonary edema, and CHF. And Jed, I know you do ICU. I don't know if you've seen kind of the other side of this, like TERP syndrome in your ICU. It's very, it's very rare. I have seen it, but it's very rare. Um, I think partly, as you mentioned, because of these new newer bipolar resectoscopes. And so it's uh, less common. Yeah, but it is commonly tested. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely commonly tested. a ton tested. of questions just on TERP alone. All right, so the first question here, uh, which of the following statements concerning absorption of irrigation fluid during transurethral resection of the prostate is true? A, hydrostatic pressure has minimal effect on the amount of fluid absorbed. B, 
B, typically 10 to 30 milliliters of fluid per minute are absorbed. C, use of isoosmotic solutions decreases the risk of hyponatremia. D, CNS complications are independent of the type of fluid used. And E, spinal anesthesia to T6 will mask the symptoms of overhydration. Yeah, so a lot of stuff in there. I think in general, um, the... uh, amount of fluid absorbed is something that it does come up a fair amount. And this 10 to 30 mLs sounds about right to me. Um, you definitely, if you look at the other choices, so hydrostatic pressure certainly does play an effect. So that's, you can get rid of a, um, CNS complications are independent. No, as you said, they do depend on the type of fluid used. Um, and, uh, spinal anesthesia to T6 will not necessarily mask the symptoms of overhydration, which could be, for example, pulmonary edema, which is not going to have anything to do with um, your spinal anesthetic. You'll still see those um, symptoms. So what that leaves is the 10 to 30 mLs or the isoosmotic solutions decreasing the risk of hyponatremia. And I don't know, Jillian, if you want to comment on that, it it certainly um, seems like that might make sense that isoosmotic solutions might decrease the risk of hyponatremia compared to hypoosmotic solutions. But um, that, that I think is not what they're getting at here. And I can't tell you, I'm a hundred percent sure why. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure why either. Um, I mean, you're at reduced risk, but I don't think, yeah, I don't have a great answer there, but the answer is B and that you can get 10 to 30 ml of fluid per minute absorbed. And I think that's really key to know in these. And this was actually my oral board stem. I had a, a patient who was a little older, mild dementia, needed a TERP. And the first question they asked was spinal or general. And I think um, the upside of spinal is you can actually monitor for a lot of these things. If you can keep someone like awake and talking, you can monitor for pulmonary edema and CHF. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I, I figured it out. So if it had said the use of isotonic solutions, ah, then that would have been go. correct. But isoosmotic doesn't. And the way to think about that is you could have something like um, glucose or sorbitol that would cause it to be isoosmotic, but that would still cause hyponatremia. Right. So oh. it would only be a solution that had sodium in it. It was isotonic that would not uh, cause hyponatremia. That's why that is, that is, that is tricky. Okay. Question two, when used for irrigation during TERP, glycine 1.5% is associated with each of the following except. So I know they're doing away with the except questions, but again, the bank I use is, uh, from anesthesia hub and it's an older bank of questions. So the answers are a hemolysis, B hyperammonemia, C cerebral edema, D, hypofibrinogenemia. Did I crush it? <laughs> e, visual disturbances. Um, yeah, so I think what they're getting at here is that, um, the as you mentioned with glycine, you can get the hyperammonemia, you can get cerebral edema, you can get um, visual disturbances. The hypofibrinogenemia is just going to be from dilution. And right. then what's left, which is the correct answer here, is hemolysis. Um, which you probably don't see because glycine at 1.5% is is not going to be hypoosmolar enough to cause um, hemolysis. Right. Perfect. Okay. Moving on. Question three, which of the following is a complication of glycine used for irrigation during TERP? So A, epileptiform activity on EEG, B, peripheral neuropathy, C, tachycardia, D, transient blindness, E, transient deafness. And this, you just have to know, as you mentioned, yeah. and as we just talked about, that uh, transient blindness is a complication of glycine. 
Yeah. And here's another one along the same line. So during transurethral resection of the prostate, intravascular absorption of glycine irrigant most commonly produces A, alkalosis, B, hemolysis, C, hypertension, D, tachycardia, E, wheezing. And so uh, tachycardia, uh, so I'm sorry, not tachycardia, <laughs> hypertension um, is going to be the most common um, side effect. Exactly. Okay. So still with TERP, I told you there are a lot of questions very commonly tested. So a 67-year-old man undergoes spinal anesthetic with hyperbaric tetracaine, 10 milligrams for TERP. At the end of the 550-minute procedure, the level of anesthesia is T6 and his blood pressure is 120 over 70. With two minutes, within two minutes after transfer to a stretcher, the patient has nausea and his blood pressure decreases to 76 over 42. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the acute hypotension? A, acute congestive heart failure. B, decreased venous return. C, dilutional hyponatremia. D, progression of sympathetic block. And E, unrecognized bladder perforation. Yeah, so here what they're getting at is they want you to not always just jump at things that you know can be caused by TERP syndrome like congestive heart failure from volume overload. They want you to think about the whole situation. This is a patient who has a spinal anesthetic, so is going to have some vasodilation and then is in lithotomy for the procedure. Then they take them out of lithotomy and all of a sudden your venous return, right, that was coming from those elevated legs to the heart it's like doing a reverse uh, straight leg raise. Now your legs go down, all your, all your blood is going to pool in your legs because you've got your vasodilator from that spinal. And so you're going to have hypotension from decreased venous return, most likely. So B would be the answer. Exactly. Okay. Question six. During TERP under spinal anesthesia with a sensory level to T10, a patient has a sudden onset of sharp upper abdominal pain and nausea. Arterial blood pressure increases from 120 over 80 to 150 over 90 millimeters of mercury. The patient becomes diaphoretic. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, bladder perforation, B, hemolysis, C, hypervolemia, D, hyponatremia, and E, myocardial ischemia. Yeah, so, you know, it's going to be bladder perforation, which although very rare uh, in these procedures is of the things they've listed here, the most likely to cause that sharp, sudden um, abdominal pain, nausea, nausea, and hypertension. So, um, you know, it's again, not saying it's common, but of the things they've given you, it's the most likely. Right. And the idea is that if they do perf the bladder, all that fluid is now going into the abdomen. So you get a lot of those symptoms because of the irrigation fluid in the intraperitoneal cavity. Okay. So question seven. A 66-year-old man undergoes a TERP of a bladder tumor in the lithotomy position with spinal anesthesia. During the procedure, the surgeon reports that the patient's right leg is jumping. This movement is most likely caused by stimulation of which of the following nerves? A, femoral, B, lateral femoral C, obturator, D, pedendal, and E, sciatic. So, you know, this is something you're either going to know or you don't. And I'll be honest that my knowledge of the... Um, this, of dermatomes and, and myotomes these days is limited uh, as I don't do much regional anesthesia anymore. But um, they're describing a, a patient in a lithotomy um, and that then uh, the surgeon reports the leg is jumping. And so uh, you have to think about the um, uh, you have to think about a variety of things what that get compressed in um, in lithotomy position. And in here, I think obdurator is probably your best bet. 
Yeah. And I like these questions that actually have overlap between two different topics, because I could also put this question under the keyword of like anatomy. And they really, in the last five years, I would say even on the basic, they've been asking a lot of these like nerve and anatomy questions. So this is good to know in like both ways, but it is something, it's called the obturator jerk. It's a known reflex during these procedures. And it's important to try and block that um, so you don't get that jerky motion. And of course, you don't, you know, if you jerk like that, you risk bladder perforation. So you'll have an unhappy surgeon. And I should actually, I, I misspoke a little. I don't think that compression of the obturator is the issue. It's that stimulation from the actual right. surgery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so next question. This is question eight under TERP. 65-year-old man is disoriented and has a headache and nausea in the recovery room 30 minutes after TERP with glycine irrigation performed under spinal anesthesia. His heart rate is 50 and blood pressure is 180 over 110. Which of the following is least likely? A, decreased serum osmolality. B, serum sodium concentration of 132 milliequivalents per liter. C, increased serum ammonia concentration. D, bi-basilar rails. E, jugular venous distension. I'm sorry, I got very distracted by my barking dogs. No worries. So (laughs) I think that you want to think hard about what they're giving you here and don't be taken in by the fact that you know sodium disturbances can happen, but a sodium level of 132 is not that bad. And so you're not going to get symptoms from a level that is 132. You really tend to not see symptoms until the sodium level gets to about 120, but certainly going to 132 isn't going to cause it. So that's probably least likely to be the issue. Yep. That's correct. Okay. We have, I know you guys are probably getting bored of TERP, but again, of everything we're doing today, this is probably the highest yield. And if you can nail these questions, uh, you'll be looking good on the, your next ITE or your advanced exam. Uh, so after the first 70, seven zero minutes of a TERP, a 70 year old man becomes confused and has tachycardia, hypertension, and shortness of breath. Serum sodium is 116 milliequivalents per liter. After informing the surgeon that the procedure should be terminated as soon as possible, the most appropriate next step would be to A, administer furosemide, B, administer labetalol, C, administer 3% sodium chloride, D, change the irrigating solution to normal saline, or, in D, or E, induce general endotracheal anesthesia. So you now obviously have a very low sodium concentration. 116 is below that threshold of 120 that we just talked about. And so the way you want to approach that is carefully. Um, So again, he's having some symptoms, but he's not yet seizing. And so what you want to do is very carefully try to correct that sodium. So you do not want, for example, to give 3% saline. That would way too rapidly correct it. Um, and so the first thing you want to start with is just a loop diuretic. So give some Lasix of what they've, they've got here. Um, and then you can also think about uh, very slow, uh, if you needed, initiation of hypertonic saline. Um, and if there is a seizure, you'd obviously treat that. And then if airway protection is needed, you would do that. But for right now, it sounds like he's having some symptoms, but he's okay. So just starting slow is going to be the way to go. Exactly. So, and I'm just saying this because again, this was my oral board and this is a very common oral board stem, but if you did have TERP syndrome, like you said, you start with fluid restriction and a loop diuretic. Then if you needed it, you would start with hypertonic saline at a very like low infusion rate. And, and then obviously for seizures, you would do benzodiazepines and then intubation if needed. So that's your treatment of TERP syndrome. Uh, so the next question, and this one's kind of mean cause it involves math. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't like any question that involves math, but a 68 year old, hundred kilogram patient is undergoing a TERP under GA. Upon arrival in the recovery room, the patient appears restless and confused. His serum sodium is checked and found to be 110 milliequivalents per liter. How many milliequivalents of sodium are needed to raise the serum sodium concentration to 120? <laughs> yeah, so there's a variety of choices here, but the bottom line is you're going to have to either know the equation and do the math or not. And the do way it- give you the choices. I'll give you the choices. So A, it's, sure. three, it's 300, 400, 500, or 600 yeah. milliequivalents. Right. So the bottom line is you have to multiply the patient's total body water times the change in sodium that you want. And so the total body water is going to be 0.6 times the body weight um, is going to give you your total body water. So I think they gave you an easy 100 kilo patient. So you're going to have a total body water of 60 liters. And then the change in sodium you want is 10 milliequivalents, right? So from 110 to 120. And so 60 times 10 is 600. So the answer is going to be 600 milliequivalents. But again, that's something you either are going to know how to calculate or not. This took me way back to MS one year. <laughs> Renal, like when you're calculating these things, total body totally. water. Yeah. And I will say in general, the board, if they do give you questions where you have to do calculations, they're usually very generous in the numbers that they give you. They try to give you very like rounded numbers where the math is easy. If you find yourself like carrying the two and dividing by eight or like, you know, that's probably, you're probably off track there just as a general rule of thumb. Okay. So the last question in the TERP category is which of the following is a complication of glycine used for irrigation during TERP? A, do we do this one already? I think oh, we did something very similar. We may have. Yeah, I think it question. was. Yeah, I think we did Sorry. this. Sorry. So it's yeah. transient blindness and we're moving yep. on. Sorry, I copied a question. Didn't mean to. Okay. Uh, so again, urological surgery. So we just did TERP. I think we covered everything very much in detail and all the questions that you could get possibly regarding TERP. Um, so the next topic is, again, extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, which I will say SWAL. It's a procedure that involves targeting renal or urinal stones with electromagnetic shocks that work up to break the stones into smaller fragments. So then the fragments can then just be regularly excreted via urine without any additional instrumentation. There are absolute contraindications. And I will say that I had a very hard time finding questions here, but I do know that it's tested and I do know that it's usually the contraindication. So even though I don't have a question for you, I really want you to pay attention here. So absolute contraindications, pregnancy, untreated UTI or urosepsis, ureteral obstruction distal to the stone, uncorrected coagulopathy or a AAA near the stone, which makes sense. So that list is very important because my guess is if you're going to get a test, it's going to be about a contraindication. And then there are relative contraindications. So that includes morbid obesity, skeletal abnormalities or hardware preventing positioning, renal malformation, uncontrolled hypertension, cardiac pacemaker, and renal insufficiency. All right. So these are the three questions that I could pull uh, regarding s -well. So number one, during extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy, the shockwave should be synchronized with A, the P wave of the EKG, B, the R wave of the EKG, D, the T wave of the EKG, D, peak inspiration, E, end expiration. Yeah. And, you know, I think what they're getting at here is that, that though not super common, um, this procedure can cause cardiac arrhythmias and Part of that is probably similar to if you were to administer a shock with a um, 
defibrillator on top of an, a T wave, you get that R on T phenomenon. Basically, when you do that, when you administer a shock, you're causing an R wave and R's should not happen on top of T's or probably P's. And so the uh, way you want to sync it is to deliver your quote unquote R on top of an R. So the best way to do it is just to overlap those. So B would be the answer here, the R wave of the EKG. Right. And if you were going to get another question about it as well, this would be the one because uh, it's, it's a commonly tested one that I've seen just looking through old questions. And I think they asked this because before they actually used to synchronize, then you saw a lot of arrhythmias during this procedure. And now that they synchronize, it's actually decreased that risk significantly. Okay, question two, which of the following physiologic changes occurs with immersion in water during S-Wall? A, decreased cardiac output, B, decreased central venous pressure, C, increased expiratory reserve volume, D, increased functional residual capacity, E, increased stroke volume. So what you have to think about here is that what happens it, when you get immersed in water, there's nothing special about this water, it's true of any water, is that you get some compression, just like wearing compression stockings. The water is compressing your uh, lower extremities uh, and if the, or any part of you that's in the water. And if it's from the waist down uh, or the you know umbilicus down, you're going to have increase in venous return because that is going to squeeze your lower extremities and increase your venous return just like wearing compression stockings would. And if you increase venous return, you're going to increase stroke volume. So E is going to be your correct answer here. And you can tell that's an older question because the current board exam, I think they only have four options, right? Not five. Yeah, they've they cha recently five. changed to four. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the last question for as well is uh, patients who undergo extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy are at increased risks for A, venous air embolism, B, pneumothorax, C, hypotension with regional anesthesia at the end of the procedure, D, postural puncture headache with spinal anesthesia. And it's kind of the opposite of what we just talked about. So if you have um, regional anesthesia and that vasodilation that it's going to cause is somewhat being compensated for by that hydrostatic pressure from the water, when you come out of the water, just like we talked about, when you come out of lithotomy, you're going to lose some of that venous return. And then that's where you're going to um, potentially get that hypotension. So C is going to be the answer there. And I find it fascinating because, like I said, I've, I've studied this and I can answer the test questions, but I've never cared for a patient actually undergoing ESWL. Like I've, and the whole idea of putting someone under general anesthesia and then putting them in like a bath of water is just kind of crazy to me. Yeah, I also have never done it. We'll be right back. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. All right, so moving on. So that is urological surgery. Again, if you're going to get a question, my guess it's going to be about TERP or TERP syndrome um, or a contraindication to as well, even though I couldn't find a question about that. So we're now leaving that topic and we're moving on to our next one. And I'm just here is um, renal failure. So the key points that I want you to just remember that I think will be most likely tested for renal failure. Again, it's a really big topic, but I try to pare it down to what's on the written test is that. So key point one is that rocuronium and vacuronium are eliminated by the liver and kidney, and the elimination of half-life of pancuronium is increased 
97% in patients with renal failure because its primary elimination is renal. Um, the duration of action of atricurium is unaffected by renal failure. Uh, the next key point is conjugation with glucuronic acid represents the major route of biotransformation of morphine. Uh, the glucuronides, morphine 3, glucuronide, which M3G, and morphine 6, glucuronide, which is M6G, are eliminated via the kidneys. So if you have chronic renal failure or renal failure, you should um, that's going to increase the amount of M3G and M6G you have, and can in, they're active metabolites, so you can have complications from uh, increased doses, quote-unquote, of morphine. Uh, next key point is that decreased platelet factor three activity, abnormal platelet adhesiveness and abnormal platelet aggregation all contribute to platelet abnormalities and prolonged bleeding times in patients with renal failure. Next key point is that GFR is the best overall indicator of kidney function. Creatinine clearance is an estimate of GFR, but it's slightly higher than true GFR. Uh, the next key point is that three major causes of post-op oliguria are pre-renal, renal, and post-renal. Pre-renal causes include hypovolemia, low renal blood flow, uh, which can be due to hypotension, low cardiac output, excess renal vascular resistance due to high SBR or renal clot dissection, et cetera, and intra-abdominal hypertension. Renal causes are acute tubular necrosis, contrast dye, tumor lysis, myoglobin, and hemoglobin anemias. And then post-renal causes include obstruction of ureters or urethra and catheter dysfunction. Now of those, my, I think if you're gonna get a question, You'll probably get a question about um, post-op or perioperative renal failure. So like oliguria, so pre-renal, renal, post-renal, post those are really common questions. And then drugs, like how does renal failure affect the drugs that you're going to give? So the neuromuscular blockades or opioids, and that's really common. And again, you're going to have overlap when we do the keywords um, for those drugs, because we talk about that a lot. When we did the keyword episode for like the non- depolarizing neuromuscular blockades. We talked a lot about that, so there will be overlap, but it's good to hear it more than once. Okay, so here are our practice questions for renal failure. Question one, a 36-year-old woman who undergoes peritoneal dialysis for chronic renal failure requires emergency surgical exploration for bowel obstruction. Serum creatinine concentration is 9.8 milligrams per deciliter and BUN concentration is 124 milligrams per deciliter. The most likely abnormality of coagulation is A, decreased euglobulin lysis time, B, decreased platelet count, C, prolonged activated partial thromboplastin time, D, prolonged bleeding time, E, prolonged prothrombin time. Right. And so what they're getting at here is this patient clearly has renal failure with a very high creatinine and a very, very high BUN. So she has uremia. Should sound familiar to think about uremic platelets. So it's the platelets that are going to have dysfunction here. And so um, not the number, but the function. So B, decreased platelet count is not correct because it's not the count that's the problem. It's going to be the function. So what does platelet function lead to? It leads to prolonged bleeding time. And so D is going to be the right answer. Right. And if you're looking for a, a question that's more like basic, because again, this is more for the advanced exam, but if they ask you a mechanism, it's from decreased platelet factor three activity, abnormal platelet adhesiveness, and then abnormal platelet aggregation. Question two, which of the following statements concerning the metabolism of cystatricurium is true? A, it is related to cardiac output. B, it is decreased by hyperthermia. C, it is unaffected by increasing age. D, it is decreased by low plasma cholinesterase activity. E, it is decreased in renal failure. Right. So cystatricurium, remember, is uh, going to not be like rocuronium or vecuronium. It's not 
cleared by any organ. In fact, it undergoes Hoffman elimination. It's uh, the way I think about that is it sort of just falls apart on its own. But the rate of that is related to um, uh, temperature. It's just not related to temperature the way it's laid out here. So it's the rate is going to be increased by hyperthermia, not decreased. Um, it's not related to cardiac output. So that's incorrect. A is incorrect. Um, it's not related to age. So that is correct. C is the right answer. It's unaffected by increasing age. Um, and then uh, plasma cholinesterase activity has nothing to do with it. Um, and uh, it is decreased in renal failure. Um, that is also not true. We said it's independent of renal function. So the answer is it is unaffected by increasing age. And it used to be, and I actually haven't done a kidney transplant in a while, but I used to exclusively use Nimbex, the Satricurium, for my renal transplant patients and my kidney, my renal failure patients. I haven't, I feel like we've gotten away from that. Have you done a transplant in a while? Are we still using it? Yeah, I, I use it still. I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, in general, I think that for induction, you don't have to use it. You have enough time during a kidney transplant that if you use rocuronium or vecuronium, it'll still, uh, it'll be cleared by the time this, this it is over. Um, but uh, also in the age of Sugamidex, it's probably less of an issue than when we were growing up without Sugamidex. Um, but I, I personally like cystatricurium, then I just am not worried about the organ function. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I still use it in patients who have renal failure. So it's just a nice drug to think about that I don't think we use as frequently as we used to. Yeah. All right, so here's another uh, neuromuscular, non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drug question. So an increased initial dose and a decreased maintenance dose of pancuronium are required in patients with A, advanced age, B, burn, C, cirrhosis, D, chronic renal failure, E, fever. And this is a bit sneaky of me. <laughs> yeah, this is a tricky one. And this is one of those things that um, you kind of either know or you don't. It turns out the answer is going to be cirrhosis. Um, so, uh, you do get a prolonged duration of action, but, um, they also have a larger volume of distribution. So you need that bigger initial first dose, but then decreased additional doses. Right. And I like sneaking questions like this in, because I feel like when I'm doing questions and it's like renal failure, renal failure, renal failure, that's what people gravitate to. So it's nice to just kind of always think critically when you're reading a question and not get caught up in this, oh, it has to be this answer. Yeah, for sure. Okay, next. Which of the following is the most sensitive indicator of impeding renal failure following trauma? A, central venous pressure. B, creatinine clearance. C, fractional excretion of sodium. D, hourly urine output. E, urine osmolality. Yeah, and here, um, it's going to be creatinine clearance. Like you said, it's not perfect, but um, of the things listed here, certainly central venous pressure is not helpful. Um, the fractional excretion of sodium can help you determine the cause of uh, decreased renal function, but is not going to um, be a great sensitive indicator of impending renal failure. Um, hourly urine obviously can be related to a ton of things, um, just not drinking a lot, for example, and urine osmolality also not is, is not going to be as helpful. So it's your creatinine clearance. Right. And just for basic exam purposes, the creatinine clearance is actually slightly higher than true GFR because creatinine is filtered and secreted, uh, but it is a, the best overall like estimate of creatinine clearance. All right, question five under renal failure. In patients with renal failure, which of the following muscle relaxants has the most prolonged elimination half-life? A, atricurium, B, pancuronium, D, succinylcholine, D, tubercurarin, which I've never used, but there it is, E, vecuronium. 
Right. So obviously these older questions are going to have things like D, <laughs> uh, and, and um, you know, even pancuronium I, I've never used. Really? Uh, but, oh. Yeah. Uh, but that is, that is the answer. And as you mentioned in your kind of summary of the key points, the elimination half-life of pancuronium is increased by 97%. So it's really increased and it is worth knowing this still may come up on a test. I think that you want to know that um, in patients with renal failure, pancuronium is going to be the most increased yeah. uh, duration. I still use pancuronium. I use it in really long cases because, like, why not? I didn't even know we had it. I mean, I probably haven't used it in a year, but it's inexpensive. And if I'm going to be in, like, an all-day case, why not? Mm, Interesting. All right. Next question. In a patient with chronic renal failure, which of the following statements concerning muscle relaxants, again, see the theme here, is true? A, duration of action of vecuronium is prolonged. B, the elimination half-life of atricurium is tripled. D, reversal with neostigmine is contraindicated. D, the onset of mivacurium is delayed. E, succinylcholine is contraindicated. So this should be pretty straightforward that the answer is A. We've already talked about the fact that the duration of action of rock and vec will be prolonged, not as much as pancuronium, but it will be prolonged. And then again, both cisatricurium and atricurium are going to have very little to no change. Um, certainly cisatricurium and, and mostly atricurium. So certainly not going to be tripled. Reversal with neostigmine should still be fine. Um, onset of action of mivacurium, right, is not going to be delayed. There'd be no reason for that. And then succinylcholine um, is not contraindicated. Yeah, and I think that's actually the trickiest answer because we talk about sucks all the time with renal failure. It's really just dependent on the potassium. You can have someone with renal failure who's got a normal potassium and you can use succinylcholine. It's just the higher potassium levels you worry about. Right. And even then you want to remember that succinylcholine will raise your potassium in a normal person who doesn't have, you know, a reason to have extra um uh um extra junctional receptors is going to raise it by about 0.5 milliequivalents. So even if someone with chronic renal failure is sitting there with a potassium of five, that's probably where they live. For them to go up to 5.5 is fine. Um, so you should obviously follow your institutional protocol for this. But in general, um, sucks is certainly not absolutely contraindicated. And as, as you said, Jillian, you really want to pay attention to the potassium, not think that all people with renal failure can't get sucks. Okay, so next question. A 73-year-old woman with a preoperative serum creatinine concentration of 2.1 milligrams per deciliter, develops oliguria during enflurane anesthesia. Urine sodium concentration is 10 milliequivalents per liter and urine osmolality is 450 milliosmoles per liter. The most likely cause of these findings is A, acute renal failure, B, chronic renal insufficiency, C, decreased renal perfusion, D, fluoride nephrotoxicity, E, intraoperative administration of furosemide. So they love to to tempt you with thinking that anesthetic that the anesthetic right. caused the renal failure, yeah. and, and I think what they just want to drive. Well, I'm sorry, I was just saying you could easily replace enflurane with sevoflurane. Exactly, and I think what they're trying to drive home here is they want you to know that that's not something that that is common in any way, or even really something you're going to see. So if the surgeons try to blame the anesthesia for the renal failure, you can say no, that's <laughs> not what it is. So um, the most likely cause of these findings is actually going to be decreased renal perfusion because the urine sodium is low. So the kidney is doing the correct thing. It's feeling that it has decreased perfusion. So it is holding on. It's assuming that that is from hypovolemia. And so it's holding on to sodium and water. And that is what you would normally see uh, in decreased renal perfusion. So that's um, what you're seeing there. 
Okay. And then this is back to another uremia question. Um, like we had the very first question. And again, these are fairly common, which is why I pulled a couple of them. Each of the following improves coagulation in patients with uremia, except A, conjugated estrogens, B, desmopressin, C, dialysis, D, epsilon, amino caproic acid, which I think is Amicar, right? E, platelet transfusion. Yeah, it is Amicar. So, uh, and that's going to be the answer. Amicar is not going to help with, um, uh, coagulation in patients with uremia because it's not a hyperfibrinolysis problem. And so Amicar is, is not going to help there. Um, what you need to do is either give platelets, though that's not a great idea uh, in and of itself because it's the milieu of the, um, of the uremia that's going to poison even new platelets. So you can do it and it will help transiently. If you do it along with these other things, it's going to be much more helpful. So um, desmopressin, dialysis, conjugated estrogens, these things can help improve function um, of, of the platelets. And so if you do those either alone or you do them in combination with a platelet transfusion, that's going to be helpful, but um, Amicar will not. Okay. So next question is a 60 kilogram 7D70 year old man requires an ORIF of an intertrochanteric fracture sustained 24 hours ago. Serum creatinine concentration is one milligram per deciliter and BUN is 40 milligram per deciliter. The most likely cause of these findings is A, acute tubular necrosis, B, chronic renal insufficiency, C, dehydration, D, obstruction of the bladder outlet, or E, recent GI hemorrhage. And so similarly, they want you to know the kind of urinalysis findings or the lab findings that are going to be uh, consistent with pre-renal um, uh, pathology. And so it, also you need to pay attention to the stem here. This guy's fracture happened 24 hours ago. Presumably he has been on the ground, not walking around with a femur fracture. And right. so uh, he hasn't been drinking. He's dehydrated. And so C is going to be your correct answer. And in fact, one of those things you look at is the BUN to creatinine ratio, which here is 40 to 1 greater than 20 to one is what we associate with pre-renal. Great. Okay, so just I think we just have four left in renal failure topic. So the next one is a patient with end-stage renal disease has prolonged ventilatory depression after administration of morphine. The most likely causes increased A, serum concentration of morphine 6-glucuronide, B, elimination of the half-life of morphine, C, opioid receptors, D, receptor affinity, E, volume of distribution. And as you said uh, in your summary at the beginning, uh, the primary routes of um, elimination of morphine is through biotransformation to, um, to morphine 3 and, and morphine 6 glucuronide, and those can build up in renal failure. So that's going to be um, your answer is answer A. Right. And the next question is basically the same question, just in a different form. Prolonged respiratory depression following administration of morphine is more likely in patients with chronic renal failure than in patients with normal kidney function because of A, decreased biotransformation, B, decreased protein binding, C, decreased volume of distribution, D, delayed excretion of morphine metabolites, E, the effect of acidosis on morphine ionization. And as you said, same, same kind of question, same type of answer, the delayed excretion of morphine metabolites. Yeah. And it's important to know. It's important to know, not just for the board exam, but that's important to know in practice. And I don't think we always think about the active metabolites and morphine, but it's important to think about, especially in renal failure. Yep. Okay, the next question is the metabolism of which of the following hypotensive agents is most likely to be affected in patients with severe renal disease? A, esmolol, B, hydralazine, C, nitroglycerin, D, nitroprusside, E, trimethophan. 
And so you have to know here that one of the side effects of nitroprusside infusion is thiocyanate um, formation, which is cleared by the kidney. And so if that's not going to happen, then uh, because your kidney is not working, then over time you're going to see um, uh, that effect. So the answer is going to be D for nitroprusside. Uh, the others are either not going to happen or less likely. And I picked this question again, not that I think they're going to ask about nitroprusside, but I think it's important when you're studying your drugs to think about how renal failure and liver failure affect the drugs. Um, and again, it, it, there's overlap with the drugs. And I, I like that overlap because it helps you hear it twice, but it's good to just categorize that when you're, even then when you're in the operating room and you're giving Vecuroni and just like kind of think about it, uh, it helps you remember these key points. All right. The last question for renal failure is a 70 kilogram, 61 year old patient undergoes a four hour resection of an abdominal aortic aneurysm during anesthesia with fentanyl and isoflurane. Infrarenal clamping is required during the procedure. 12 hours after the procedure, urine output is 15.15 milliliters per hour with a fractional sodium excretion of 6%. Which of the following is the most likely cause? A, isoflurane nephrotoxicity. B, hypovolemia, C, intraoperative renal ischemia, D, positive pressure ventilation, or E, unilateral ureteral obstruction. Yeah, so I think they're trying to trick you a little by telling you it's an infrarenal clamp and so making you think, oh, infrarenal, then it doesn't affect kidney perfusion, but it definitely does. Not as much as a suprarenal clamp, but still impairs renal perfusion, even infrarenally. And so you do have decreased perfusion. And then you have to also remember that when you have a fractional excretion of sodium of more than 1%, here it's 6%, that's consistent with intrarenal pathology, which can come from ischemia. So the answer here is going to be C, intraoperenal ischemia. Yep. Um, so that's it for the questions. So just kind of to review... For urological surgery, if you're going to get a question, my guess is it's going to be about TERP, the procedure, the complications, all of that TERP syndrome. Um, you may get a question about lithotripsy. And if you do, my guess it will be about a contraindication to lithotripsy. And then for renal disease, it's about the drugs and how renal failure affects the different drugs that we give. And also, I think most likely you would see probably perioperative oliguria, like pre-renal, renal, post-renal. Um, and I put morphine into that, the opioids and how renal failure can affect the clearance of opioids, especially the active metabolites. Uh, and there was one other one for renal failure gone completely that I think they might ask. Oh, uh, uh, uremia, the effect on platelets, platelet function. That's Great. It. Well, thank you, Jillian. Let's turn to the favorite portion of our show where we make random recommendations. You've always got great ones. What do you have for us? Uh, you know, I, I feel like I always pick books and I've kind of been on a book trend lately. Uh, so I'm actually reading Black Klansman, which I know was a movie years back. I and mean, I've had the book and I've just never picked it up. But it's about uh, Chicago, the first black, not Chicago, I'm sorry, Colorado Springs. The first African-American Colorado Springs police officer actually infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan. And it's his story and kind of like all the behind of the Ku Klux Klan and I find it fascinating because I guess I never really, I always saw a Ku Klux Klan, like post-Civil War, you know, white costumes and hoods. And it was like a remnant of the past, but it's actually something that's really kind of carried over and through time. And um, it's just, it's a, it's not, I shouldn't say it's not the, it's not the best writing, you know, it's written by a police officer and not to knock that they can't write well, but it's not like, oh my gosh, the writing's amazing. It's not like uh, Lolita and a great writer, but the story is fascinating and, and uh -huh. worth a read. And I think in 
well, I hate to say like today's political climate, it kind of helps explain how January 6th happened in a way. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. We have an audience random recommendation. This is from Tyler Jones. Tyler says he recommends the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's about the harm that trauma can cause the body and the mind and how to approach treatment and recovery. Tyler says it's easily one of the most important books I have read. Sadly, almost nothing in the book was taught to me in medical school. It's not an easy read, but it is probably an important read for every human being. Thank you so much, Tyler. I'm sure people will want to check it out. Uh, I will uh, shout out a podcast from Axios, which is a news um, company called Axios Today. And it's a daily Monday through Friday uh, podcast that just goes over like the big news of the day. And what I love is that it's about 10 to 12 minutes long total each day. So it's really easy to listen to just on your commute or while you're jogging or whatever it is. It's very short, gives you kind of some highlights. It's amazing how how they they actually get a little bit in depth. I'm not sure how they do it. They go kind of in depth in a nice way without belaboring things. So you get a fair amount of good stuff in just uh, in just 10 to 12 minutes. So uh, Axios today, check it out. All right, Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Anytime. All right. Another great keyword episode. Thanks to Dr. Isaac. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. Leave a comment so others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jed Wolpaw on uh, Venmo. Thank you so much to those who've already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. You can also, uh, and I usually mention this before, but you can also uh, join the conversation either on uh, Facebook, on the Facebook group, or on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who's our tech lead, to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who was our prior social media manager and still helps out, and to April Liu, who is our current social media manager. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.